Today we are continuing to look at some of the great prayers of the Bible. And uh, there's a handout in your bulletin. So if you want to follow along, that might be helpful. I'm going to show you some pictures. Um, Of all the prayers of the Bible, this is a prayer with a really interesting backstory. And it may be one of the stories in the Bible with the most historic and archaeological evidence behind the story. And so if I show you some pictures, uh, I can kind of get you into the story a little bit. Um, Our story today is a story of two kings. The first king is a king uh, of Judah, the southern part of Israel. Remember, Israel in the Old Testament divides, and the northern part is called Israel. It gets a little confusing sometimes. The bottom is called Judah, and they have their own kings And at this time, Israel has basically been destroyed, the northern part. And there's what's left is just Judah. And Judah has a king named Hezekiah. Now, most kings in the Old Testament are actually not very good. You got David, and then his son Solomon's not as good. And then you got a lot of really bad kings. There's only a couple kings that are really called good kings. And Hezekiah is one of them. He's a guy that served God. And he did a lot to serve and protect the people. A lot of Judah grew. Jerusalem, you were going to see it, grew quite a bit. And he actually cleaned up the worship. So part of the problem for Israel was they'd worship all kinds of other gods. Even in the temple and on the Temple Mount, there'd be idols to other gods that they would worship. And Hezekiah went in and took a lot of those out. He's really a pretty, pretty good king. And we have evidence of Hezekiah from all kinds of records. But in that picture there, there's this thing called a a bulla. Okay, and it's a little seal. See the circles there at the top? Um, and so it's, it, those are only about the size of a dime, maybe a little bit bigger towards the nickel. But what the, they would be as kingly seals. And so they would take a piece of clay and they would press it into like an envelope or a, you know, kind of something, that, a scroll, that kind of thing, or something that you would slide a paper or document in. And then they would press their official seal onto it. Now, they're kind of neat because, number one, a lot of times you would flatten it with your finger, which means we actually have the fingerprints of some of these kings. Uh, And we have one we found of the prophet Isaiah. We have pretty clearly part of Isaiah's fingerprint. This one is King Hezekiah. And apparently they were collectible in the Old Testament, in Old Testament times, because we find, like archaeologists find big jars of them. And we found there's been lots of them that have been found, and they're all in like groups. These were the original coin collection. These are the original baseball cards. But that's Hezekiah's seal. So we, we found it. We have evidence of this guy, Hezekiah. Now, now, Hezekiah had a problem during his reign. He had a problem, and the problem was named Assyria. And for a long time, it was the ruler of Assyria, a guy named Sennacherib. Uh, you can see a relief there, a picture uh, uh, that's carved of Sennacherib. And you can see he had great tastes in beards and a questionable taste in hats. That's what we can know about Sennacherib from right there. Okay, But he ruled this Assyrian Empire. He was actually very cruel, uh, known and bragged about how cruel that he was. He was a bully. He, he picked fights with a lot of people, pushed people around. One of the reliefs that we have of Sennacherib is the, the battle for the city they attacked just before the Jerusalem that we're going to see today. And they actually have people uh, impaled in front of the city. They would do that kind of stuff before they attacked the city. 
they would kill some of the people in front of the city to let them know what's going to happen to them as a, as a tactic. I mean, they were expert, expert bullies. But they, they ruled this huge empire. So our story takes place about 701 B.C., 701 years before Christ. Um, but you can see a map there of the Assyrian Empire, and that map is about 30 years later. And it's when the empire was at its biggest. But look how big it is. It goes all the way across the Middle East, all the way down into Egypt. And you can see how centrally located the kingdom of Judah would be. It'd be right there in the middle. So for, for the Assyrians to have access to Egypt, they had to have Israel. They had to have that land. And that was where some of the best ports were. There's not actually that many ports along the Mediterranean. And so you needed that area where Judah was. So King Hezekiah, like a lot of people, uh, a lot of kings, gave tribute to the Assyrian Empire. It paid money. It was sort of a vassal state. So you could sort of rule on your own, but you actually answered to Assyria. Um, but at some point, Sennacherib's father died. And Hezekiah decided he had seen, you know, Israel had fallen. So there's no more city to the north. They're really sort of by themselves. And what he said is, in his head, like, this is going to be bad. These people are going to attack us. They're going to keep bullying us around. And so he cuts off ties with Assyria, stops paying tribute. Now, eventually, he goes back on his word, and he does pay some tribute. But, but, he, but he still sort of rebels against Sennacherib. And he gets a little support from Egypt, but the other nations around him really don't help him. Israel is really on his own against the biggest superpower in the world at this time. So the book of 2 Kings portrays his stand as this major moment of faith. But again, I've already told you, he sort of goes back on his word. But you can understand the struggle. Okay, here's this Assyrian empire that that there's no way Judah's going to stand up to them. And yet they're having to... You can understand his struggle for security and safety. I mean, if he doesn't rebel, eventually they're going to push him around and his kingdom is going to become no more. But if he stands up, they're probably going to do it even faster. So what do you do? It's an impossible, impossible situation. Where what Hezekiah does, he starts to prepare Jerusalem for war. He starts to get them ready for battle. He knows it's going to come, so he gets them ready. Now, there's several keys to attacking or to defending a city in these days. One is walls. Okay, if you have no walls to defend, you're going to be wiped out very quickly by a larger army. They'll just roll right in. So you have to have walls, and they have to be defensible. In other words, these walls have to have some kind of towers, some kind of spots that extend so that you can actually fight off on the walls. You also have to have supplies. In those days... A lot of times what they would do is if you wanted to attack the city, you just surround it and wait. And then eventually people run out of food. They use their arrows up or their stones for slings as they're waiting, you know, as they're trying to keep you from attacking. And then eventually the people are out of weapons. Eventually they're starving. They're out of food. Then you can take them over really easy. And then the third thing you have to have is water. Okay, Remember, this is the Middle East. Okay, you got to have water and there's only a certain amount of water sources. Okay, and if you, if you had a well, a lot of times cities were built with a well or some kind of spring. But if the enemy had access to that, they could poison your water. And we know of cities that have fallen just because the enemy threw in a dead animal or threw in something that would poison the water. And a, a city of people who are hungry and then who have stomach flus, that's a very easy city to destroy. Everybody see that? 
So Hezekiah gets to work. The first thing he does is build some walls. Now, under Hezekiah's rule, the city had grown. You can see a picture there. The city of David, which is sort of like a knife at the bottom of this hill, that's where David's city started. And then Solomon had built the temple and some more city up the hill to the north. But in Hezekiah's time, by Hezekiah's time, the city had, had grown dramatically to the west. The problem was there was no walls over there. So the first thing Hezekiah did when he rebelled against Sennacherib was he built a broad wall. He defended that part of the city. That way, too, when people poured into the city, then he would have more space for those people to protect them and he'd have more supplies. Okay, you can see there's a picture in the bottom right of that page that I took of the base of the wall that uh, Hezekiah built. Okay, it's a broad wall. It's very wide. It's in the middle of Jerusalem. They found it during an excavation, uh, during a building project, actually. And they opened it up and they left part of it open so you could see it. So there's still evidence of this wall, this broad wall. It's pretty simple. It's just a, a stack of stones, really. But um, it was the wall they used to defend that huge extra part of the city. Then what else do you need? You need a wall, you need supplies. And so what we also can tell from archaeology is that Hezekiah not only built the wall, but he built towers, he built storehouses. And we find all over the place these jars like you see pictures here. Okay, in Jerusalem, they have found a bunch of these. They have four handles, and I gave you a little picture of the handle. You can see a little seal on them. Okay, we find that there's all kinds of evidence for these kind of jars, and they are labeled as belonging to the king. And a bunch of them have been dated to who? Hezekiah. So we know Hezekiah did a lot of work to put grain, to put water, to put food, put all kinds of stuff in these jars all over the city. Then, probably the most amazing thing that he did was to deal with the water system. Jerusalem is fed by what's called the Gahon Spring um, to the east of the city. But the problem is, if it's out there, then, then the enemy can have access to it. And they can also poison it. They can also keep you from getting to it. So Hezekiah closed that off. And then there were these tunnels underground that the Canaanites had built to get to those. That's partially how David's people came up into the city to take it. And Hezekiah dug this tunnel. It zigzagged through the city underneath of it and then pulled in a pool that Jesus would later hear somebody at called the Pool of Siloam. And uh, you can see a couple pictures on the middle of the back there of a few of us in those tunnels. We're actually in the old parts of the tunnel because water still flows through Hezekiah's part. And we were there in the winter, so it's too much water. But you can still walk through the tunnels. And when they excavated those tunnels, they found in the middle of the tunnel this inscription I've given you a picture of that talks about how the two teams that started on the other end of the tunnel found each other. People still don't understand how they did it. Because the tunnel does, they, it looks like they followed some kind of crack because it's not straight at all. It zigzags. But imagine, the arch, imagine cutting through rock a tunnel. It's got to be downhill so that the water flows to where you want it to. And it zigzags under the city and then meets up. Isn't that amazing? Okay? And then he seals it up. That way, Hezekiah's army has no water. Israel has all the water they need. He gets them ready. Hezekiah um, actually then decides, after he gets a lot of the stuff ready, that he's going to repay Sennacherib. But Sennacherib is, at this case, ticked off. So he takes the money from Hezekiah, but decides, I'm going to attack anyway. 
And he goes through all of Judah and starts wiping out cities. And I mean in nasty, nasty ways, destroying the cities, destroying the people. Now, before attacking, Sennacherib sends a representative to Hezekiah to try to bully him. And you can read it in the text. I I don't have time to get to all of this because we're still getting to the prayer. But three times this guy comes to Hezekiah and basically bullies him. He said, you think your God is special? Oh, you worship Yahweh. You think he's special? Do you know how many cities we've already destroyed? Do you know how many other temples we've already destroyed? Like, What makes your God different than any other God? You got to know that you, you did some work. You built your walls. You did all this. But you're not going to beat us. Three times this guy comes and tells Hezekiah this. Tries to bully him. Try to intimidate him. Try to weaken him before the battle. And Hezekiah knows deep down. He doesn't have the soldiers. He doesn't have the might. All the preparations that he's done are not going to be enough when the arrows start flying. And the third exchange after the third exchange, Hezekiah gets a letter reporting that the armies are coming, that he's about to be surrounded. So he knows it's, it's, it's coming to an end. And he knows all of his help, like Egypt's not coming to help him. All the other, country, all the other uh, cities that could send help, they've all been destroyed. Jerusalem is on its own. Everybody understands how dire the situation is, right? So Hezekiah goes to the temple and he prays. I'll pick up his prayer in 2 Kings 19.14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made the heaven and the earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open out your, your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wooden statue. Therefore, they are destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from this hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. So Hezekiah goes and he prays. Because what else is he going to do? This is a short and stylized prayer. It's probably uh, uh, edited over time a little bit for liturgical purposes to be sung. And, um, but, but he starts with a doxology. He proclaims a trust that God is above all the gods. So he identifies the problem rightly. This is not just a battle of two armies. It's not just a, a battle of a city. This is a theological battle. Whose God is really God? He then tells God of the brutality of Sennacherib. Sets Sennacherib up as the true enemy of Yahweh. After praise, after laying out the situation, then he he puts in his petition. Save us. Save us. Save us so that not just that we're saved, but so that the people know who the real God is. So Hezekiah then gets a response from the prophet Isaiah. 
It's lengthy, but here's the important part. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. He shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. So Isaiah gets a word from the Lord and it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. There's no way Hezekiah even thinks this is what's going to happen. Isaiah says, you know what's going to happen? Nothing. They're not even going to attack. There'll be no arrows, no siege, nothing. They're just going to leave. What? But if you read the text, it's what happens. It says, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose in the early morning, behold, there were all the dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. So the story tells us, angel of the Lord comes through. They wake up in the morning, a bunch of the soldiers are dead. They freak out, they leave. They don't even attack the city. Now what's interesting about this is that actually, Sennacherib himself verifies somewhat what happened. He leaves out the dead bodies, the angel of the Lord, but in Sennacherib's histories, which are recorded on these prisms, I showed you a picture there. It's a six-sided uh, um, uh, clay, clay piece with his history on it. Sennacherib brags that he surrounded Jerusalem, that he pinned Hezekiah like a bird in a cage, and then went home. So, so does he, he leaves out the angel of the Lord, the, you know, he brags like it was his decision. Look how great I was. But, but actually it verifies the, the, the bare bones of the story, right? That in fact, even the Assyrian history says they didn't attack Jerusalem. They didn't even attack Jerusalem. They left. Now, there's all kinds of debate about what happened there. And um, one, his, one uh, Jewish historian, uh, or one uh, Assyrian historian has suggested that maybe uh, that there were rats. And that maybe part of what happened was kind of a bubonic plague, which they didn't name as that at the time or know was associated with rats. We don't know exactly how God does it, but we can verify from history that they didn't even attack Jerusalem. Jerusalem is totally rescued. God answers this prayer. I'm, I'm fascinated by so much about this story. I'm really fascinated by the archaeology. I've given you a bunch of it and, I, and uh, the verifiable history of it. But I'm, I'm especially fascinated by Hezekiah in preparing and praying. That he got ready for war, but then he also prayed knowing it wasn't going to be enough. He wants security. He wants to feel safe, and he's got to get that from God, but he also works his butt off to get it. Can't we all identify with the difficulty of balancing those two things? Prayer and preparation. Is it up to me or is it up to God? How much do I trust God and how much do I need to work? It's a struggle of every Christian, I think. That we, we say that Jesus died for us, that it is a full gift, we don't have to earn it, and yet it's not a gift without expectation. It's a gift where we have to live according to it. I'm giving you a saying at the bottom there. 
It's often attributed to either St. Augustine of Hippo or St. Ignatius Loyola. It probably doesn't come from either of them, though. I don't know who made it up, but it is interesting to think about. It says, pray as though everything depended on God. Work as though everything depended on you. Pray as though everything depended on God. Work as though everything depended on you. And isn't it hard to balance those two things? It's easy to pray as a last resort, like work, work, work. And then at the end, you're like, oh, God, please help. Okay. Or to pray and pray and pray. And then at the end, you're like, maybe I should do something about it. I've had this, this same two sides of this conversation with people trying to get jobs. I've heard people say, you know, I've been praying and God's just not giving me a job. I ask God for a new job. He won't give me a new job. And I say, have you applied anywhere? Well, no, I've been waiting for God to give me a job. And I, and I promise you, I've had the same conversation in the opposite direction. Where, I'm like, where somebody's like, I've been applying to all these jobs. You know, I keep getting told, no, I apply, I apply. I said, well, you, have you prayed about that or asked God where he's leading you? Blank stares, right? Like, either God has to do it all and I do nothing, or I have to do it all and God does nothing. Isn't it hard sometimes to balance the two? Right? To figure out where is that line. This is a, I live this balance because I have to prepare a sermon every week. And man, I hope God speaks through this sermon. I hope God says something to you through this sermon. But I also know that God didn't write it. I have never woken up in the morning and be like, look, God wrote my sermon. I had to actually sit my fanny in a desk chair and write this thing. I had to research this. Okay? Is it God's sermon or is it my sermon? It's somewhere in the middle. And it's really hard to find those balance. So I, I know a lot of people who do a lot of work but don't really bring God in the equation. I know a lot of people that don't do a lot of work and they just trust God, but, but really they should be getting up off their tokus and doing something. And, and somewhere in the middle is this balance of prayer and preparation. Right? Trusting and doing. And, and I think Hezekiah sometimes struggles with the two. But where does he find the balance? In prayer. Prayer is the place where we fight for the balance. Prayer is the place where I say, God, here's what I've been doing. Guide me if you want me to do something else. Make it fail if it's not your will. Just guide me because ultimately I need it to be your will. I want it to be your, your will, not my will. So prayer is the place where we find the balance. And I wonder if we'd had three or four prayers from Hezekiah. If he might have done a little better at balancing this. He almost prays a little bit at the last minute, right? See, if you're going to be who God wants you to be, you've got to work and you've got to trust. You've got to put in the effort... And God's got to show up. If we're going to be the church that God wants us to be for the future, we have to pray. God has to show up and do something. And we got to do our part. And it's this weird, hard balance that I know a lot of Christians struggle with. I think Hezekiah struggled with it some. Because, because I, I, it's hard to find security when it's both. It's hard to feel safe when it's both. But that is what we're called to do. So whatever God is calling you to in your life, do the work. Build your broad walls. Store up your supplies. Dig your water, water tunnel. But also get on your knees. 
And understand that if it's all up to you, it's going to fail. Do your work, but also trust and ask God to show up as well.